Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Welcome to the Investor Hour podcast. I'm your host Rahul Goel. The goal of this podcast is to learn from the best investment minds of our times. We want to learn their backstory, essentially what makes them them. We want to learn how they make their decisions in their personal lives, and of course. we want to learn about their core principles of investing essentially a lot of learning that could help you make better decisions in life and investing raj shekhar ayer's stock market journey has taken him from writing notes on stocks for a magazine to being recognized as a super investor his unique investment style uses benjamin graham's approach as a base and to that he has made modifications to evolve a style that is time tested and proven this involves when to buy a stock and when to exit his approach to position sizing is extremely well thought through and something investors should emulate this fascinating episode is bound to make you think about how you could improve your own approach to stock picking and portfolio building listen in so raj welcome to the uh, equity master investor hour we're super super delighted to have you on our show uh, i would like to kick off our discussion today with really going back to the beginning so if you could please tell us a little bit about yourself starting from you know where were you born where you grew up the kind of oh. schooling uh we just want to get uh, this is what we do in every investor hour we try and understand the back story before we actually get talking about the markets and you know how you pick stocks etc you know i uh, actually i'm uh, tamil but um, my dad used to work for a multinational corporation and uh, he was posted in amdavad so actually i ended up growing in uh, amdavad from my schooling fourth standard onwards till i finished my ca i was in amdavad so in a sense i am i would say by birth tamil but by breeding uh, gujarati you know so. uh, i i have to stop you raj there there's disturbance coming here is when you when you are speaking there's disturbance coming how is that uh, are you using an external microphone I'm not using an external mic. This is just my phone. Are you getting sounds from outside? No. When you speak, I'm getting a little bit of a uh, hissing, jarring sound. Are you still getting it? No, not now. Not now. Okay. Let's see how it goes. So, should I repeat what I said? Yeah. Yeah. Or we'll clean it up in the post edit. No worries. Go ahead. Yeah. So basically, because I grew up in Ahmedabad, I think I. Um, I, I of course one of the things was I spoke Gujarati quite fluently, and um, after I finished my CA, I was quite keen to get going. And Ahmedabad was hardly the place those days to do anything, so I came to Bombay and um, I worked in Bombay for a couple of years. Uh, I did my CA, so I was working for a audit firm. So I worked for Billy Moriya, and then I went to join their associate firm, KPMG in Bahrain. so i worked in bahrain for a few years but um, very soon i realized that um, it the profession didn't really excite me you know so i wasn't sure what i wanted to do but i was pretty clear that uh, i didn't want to be in the accounting profession as such i mean i had learned a lot by doing my ca and i think reading balance sheets by even working at ca firms i understood how accounts are prepared so i think that's always been something useful that i found I didn't see myself uh, doing that for the rest of my life, you know. 
So I basically quit my job uh, in KPMG in Bahrain and came back to India when I was about uh, 29 years old. Um, actually, uh, without an idea of what I was going to do, you know. Which year was this? This was 87. 87. Early 87. Um, so when I came to India, I had some vague idea of starting some kind of consulting firm, advising people on. Um, various things I, i was pretty good at company law and taxation so i thought uh, one of my friends was doing his practice i thought maybe i'll become a advisor in company law and taxation but that didn't work out as in i i, I sat down for a little while and thought about it i didn't really fancy that much but like i said so that year uh, in bombay so i decided to shift to bombay because i didn't like ahmedabad very much as in i didn't like the social life in ahmedabad uh, that much uh, i mean i had all my friends were there but you know Bombay was a little bit more exciting place to stay, so I stayed in Bombay for about a year uh, without doing anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't do anything, you don't earn any money. And if you don't earn any money, you're soon looking for uh, ways to make money. And the short-term way was when I was in Bahrain, I used to apply for all the IPOs, you know, because those days we had some NRI quota, and even stocks which were like very heavily oversubscribed. you could get an allotment if you're in nri you know oh, wow. so sitting in bahrain you were applying for indian ipos so basically i had no idea of what companies i was investing in uh-huh. so bank account in city bank so when you went there along with all the withdrawal slips and uh, all that kind of stationery they'd keep application form for equity <laughs> so i had one simple criteria if the firm was based in gujarat i would apply for it you know because for some reason i felt gujarati companies were better No, <laughs> but I emotional connect with the Gujarat. Some of them were right, some of them not so right, and um, I had some uh, good stocks and some real duds, you know. Um, but some of the good stocks also turned to be duds in the long term. Mm-hmm. So I had stocks like Garden, uh, Silk Mills. Garden was that yeah, those. I don't know. I don't know whether the company did well or not. Yes, you know, but the ads were super. Those the products were very very good, and I'm familiar with the products because I was from Ahmedabad, mm-hmm. and uh, they had a good reputation uh, for quality. The stock did well, I must say, at least uh, in the initial stages. Uh, Indo Gulf Fertilizers, a very wide range of uh, companies. I probably had about twenty five thirty stocks in my portfolio, you know, without knowing the first thing about them, and. Uh, this was um, not a very profitable thing to do but in the long term it was a very useful thing to do because what happened was when i came to bombay and i was hanging around in bombay i um, had to uh, find some money for my living expenses so um, uh, i decided that i had to sell some of these shares to make money and i had no clue of which stock to sell which stock to hold So my brother had a friend who was a stock broker. So I contacted him. He said, "Ah, isko rakho, isko bech do. Ya chaye karab." You know, he was not really an analyst or anything, but he had a lot of experience in the stock market. But um, those days, nobody used to actually analyze much. You know, so it was his field. He was very good in terms of going to the ring and finding out what's the sentiment and all that. So he used to give me some inputs on that. Um, but some of his advice was not very good. You know, so as in in terms of results. very well intentioned and very good uh, advice but in terms of results so i remember one particular instance where the company which had got quite a lot of shares of and the company came out with a 2 for 1 rights issue at par 
and the stock was trading at some 80 or something like that. So my friend said, no, no, this is like scam management. You sell off the shares. And I sold off the stock quickly. After the X bonus, it went to 200 rupees or something. You know, so I actually had three shares at 200 rupees, 600 rupees. So selling it for 80 rupees. So I realized that um, I probably needed to uh, do a little bit of study on these companies before I took decisions on that. <clears throat> now, having been in the accounting profession for so many years, um, I guess I had a slightly systematic way of doing this thing. So I would take a balance sheet, I'd look at the prospectors, I'd read what they had done, I'd try to work out some ratios, you know, I tried to figure out uh, what the stock was worth, those kind of things. Not that I had any knowledge of, serious knowledge of valuation, but I would make my best efforts. And uh, having been in an audit firm like KPMG, I had the habit of documenting everything I did also. You know, So when I did that, uh, the interesting thing was all my friends who were in Bahrain had invested in pretty much the same stocks. So some of them said, boss, if you're analyzing these stocks, why don't you tell us also what we should do? You know, So uh, that's I would say my career as an analyst began, you know. So I would take a Xerox copy of what I had written and send it to them. I don't know how useful they found it, but it was something that got me into the habit of analyzing uh, stocks. So uh, yeah, I found it interesting, not very, um, what I would say, uh, I didn't know a lot about it, but I knew something more than what I knew before, you know. And then um, I felt that what I was missing out was actual contact with the management, you know, what they were actually saying. So I started reading interviews of management in investment magazines, you know. So I started reading some of the investment magazines those days uh, where they would actually, management would say this is what we expect and all, which I found useful to add to my historic analysis. Um, I found some really... Uh, poor quality analysis in some of these magazines. And uh, being a kind of uh, professional kind of person, I wrote to the magazine saying that I appreciate what you're trying to do, but this is the correct way to analyze stocks. The correct way to analyze stocks is, you should, so you should read balance sheet in this manner. And I sent them a note, one of the magazines. And the publisher was um, quite uh, interested. He called me and he said, I like this, what you have written. And you have sent me an analysis of a company. Um, <clears throat> I think this was a company called Code Distilleries. Sorry, which one? A company called Code Distilleries. Okay, Code Distilleries. It no longer exists, I think. But I found a lot of uh, gaps in what they said in the prospectus and what was there in the balance sheet. And I had written a fairly critical article about what they were doing, basically to convince my friends that they should sell the shares, you know. But uh, this publisher of the magazine really liked it because I think now as then, uh, people like critical articles. You know? People read them with more interest. So he asked me, can I just publish this in my magazine? So I told him, sure. I mean, but if you want to publish it, I'll write it nicely for you. He said, no, no, it's nicely written. I said, no, no, I'll write it better. I, I always, uh, so he said, great. And I wrote it uh, in a form of article and gave it to him. He liked it. And I think he got good feedback on the article. It was a fairly critical look at the company's balance sheet and um, uh, which wasn't that common those days, you know. Uh, journalists were basically uh, arts graduates who used to have a skill for writing, not so much for analysis. So then he was quite interested. He said, why don't you write regularly for me? You know, then we worked out some commercial deal and I started writing regularly for him, which uh, became very interesting for me because uh, I could get a lot of access to balance sheets, reports, stock market uh, data and all that. 
and um, very quickly within a year uh, i became the editor of the magazine you know so and then i brought in a lot of professional people like me to write for the magazine chartered accountants cost accountants mbas those kind of uh, people because i realized that um, uh, the people who are writing earlier were very interested and very good journalists but they were not uh, really suitable for writing on stock market issues you know so this was a very uh, what is a interesting phase of my life yeah. so it gave me an opportunity to meet a lot of managements so uh, many companies including some of the top companies uh, today i would actually go and meet them and i would chat with them and i think the fact that i had a accounting background and i could actually read their balance sheet helped me actually engage with them a little better than many other people you know yeah. because they were also interested in talking about their company and uh, but i found that that was a much more interesting thing than writing article for uh, the retail audience because the retail audience was by and large uh, what is it those days at least uh, more interested in uh, what's going to happen tomorrow and this week and with the company and all that so anyway, one thing led to another and i uh, quit the magazine after a couple of years and started my own uh, company it was called the value investor i mean it was called security analysis india private limited so we basically started uh, what i think is india's first research company okay which which year was this it was 1990 mm. uh, uh 1990 1990 990 no, okay 1990 so, just to just to get a couple of more years from you which year did you join the magazine you were writing for before this I joined in 1988 as a editor. one year after you came to bombay okay one year after i came to bombay and um, I was doing some freelance writing before I joined. I mean, okay. I started writing, I think, in end '87 or something like that. Okay. So, yes. So before we talk about 1990 and uh, uh, security analysis, value investor. Uh, so we, I think the one point that has come out is your accounting backgrounds helped you, right, in the rigor and uh, what you did, and then you applied it in your own way. But I want to go back one more step. uh tell us about your household a little bit uh, your parents did they have any background in investing were they uh, did any of that sort of grow on my father worked for a multinational company although he was a regional accountant named the badi shrethan background yeah um he uh, had started working when he was 17 years old oh wow he retired when he was 50 did you say years. he had a accounting background your he father did have accounting background but he worked in the accounts department He rose because of seniority, and uh, he was he worked for Brookbond actually, and uh, so he that's why he was in Ahmedabad. Mm. But uh, we had no family uh, background of investing. I, we were pretty, I would say, middle class uh, background, you know. Um, and my father was pretty concerned in the initial stages about uh, working in the stock market. You know, so he always used to. Uh, worry that uh, you would lose money by investing in the stock market so it was not considered to be a very uh, am i right in saying that it was not considered to be a very reputable place till the late 80s not so much i mean i, I would say my father was uh, i would say broad minded enough to not uh, think it of it like but from a financial point of view he was very concerned that uh, you know i think stock market was associated with speculation you know so Sata. he feeling that uh, yeah sata so he had sata bazar and share bazar were almost synonymous those days you know so he had this feeling that uh, so he would ask me you invest in stocks to make money as a yeah 
But he said, you can lose money also. I said, yes. So he said, how do you manage that? I said, yeah, that's the whole trick, you know, that you have to try not to lose money and try to make money. And you have to build in methodology. But I was always, I would say from the beginning, because of very low amount of capital available, uh, I was always very loss averse, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Interesting. So from beginning, I was very uh, a value-oriented investor and um, just did not have any uh, appetite for, uh, you know, volatility. Mm. So Interesting. So interestingly, what happened was uh, being in the magazine uh, gave me, uh, what do you say, contact with a large number of people who are in the stock market. People are writers, people are analysts, people are... So those days, there used to be a lot of, um, you know, there were many young people uh, who were, um, you know, doing new and interesting things. There are newsletters being written by people. There are Elliott Wave analysts. There I are, remember. I, I remember one Flash News. The last Street used to publish. Flash News was, uh, yeah, my the publisher used to write Flash News. You know, the same magazine. I used to uh, edit the last Street Journal. We used to write Flash. Oh, you were the last Street. I, I didn't Flash. know that. So I, I used to. I, I was editor of the last Street. And Mr. Padude's. That's Mr. Padude's uh, firm, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So he was the one who uh, reached out to me to start writing for him. And uh, anyway. It was a bit of a, you know, wild west those days. A lot of people used to write a lot of things. There are magazines like Profit, Money, yeah. uh, what is the Financial Wizard. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was an eminent uh, technical analyst like uh, Dani and Mansukhani. They used to write newsletters, Divanji, you know. And I used to read everything whatever everybody wrote, because I had a clean slate and I knew nothing about the stock market. And I was open to every idea that came out in the stock market. And one of the interesting things which happened those days was uh, there used to be something called a technical analyst conference. <clears throat> so this was a group of some 15, 20 technical analysts. They would get together every month and they would have a meeting in Bombay in one of the uh, halls, like Indian Merchant Chamber or some HR college or something like that. And uh, one person would be given the uh, job of giving, presenting his views on the market, you know, and everybody else would question. It was a very interesting, um, what I thought, idea, and it worked very well. So um, I was invited to those meetings because I was editor of the Wall Street and I was writing and all that. And I found, I went to one of those meetings. This was uh, pretty early when I started writing. So this was probably... 1988, uh, February or March, you know, the index was 410, the index, you know. So I had this very interesting analyst called Tushar Gandhi, who got up on the board and uh, who drew a full chart for the last 10 years of the market. And then he did his Elliott wave analysis, wave one, wave two, wave three, wave four, macrowave, microwave, all that kind of thing. But basically his conclusion was that the market was ready to explode upwards, you know. And uh, the market had come down from something like 550 to 400, you know, which was a big move those days. And it was actually a kind of bear market, you know. <clears throat> but he predicted that this market would go up and Reliance, I think, was 56 rupees at that time. He said within three months, Reliance will be 160. And uh, he made very bold predictions, you know. And um, he was, uh, I mean, the audience was very argumentative. People argued with him that your account is wrong. This is not wave three, this is wave four. 
this way five this is very esoteric not much i could understand but what i was impressed was with the conviction with which he said this is what is going to happen mm-hmm. me as an investor in the stock market one thing was very clear that you could make money only if you had a view of what is going to happen at least that's what i thought those days you know um so i was very impressed with this uh, ability to sort of look at the market and say this is what is going to happen to the market in the future so i met him up uh, met with him after the meeting and i invited him to a dinner with me and uh, i told him that you know i'm very interested in what you said this elite way analysis and i would like to analyze the market this way can you teach me you know and i said i'll pay you a tuition fees whatever it is so he laughed and he said no need for tuition fees and all i'll give you a few books you read them and uh, you'll understand i said no no i mean i i don't believe in learning only from books i need to actually meet people so anyway we got a long story short he gave me that and i started reading the books i went back to him he said you can call me any time i called him i told him i don't understand this i don't understand this way it kept on going for some time you know i just couldn't get into my head elite wave analysis and technical analysis all that kind of finally he got frustrated and he said this is not for you because you keep talking about companies and valuation and all that so what you should be reading is benjamin grams security analysis and security analysis in order to did that he actually took me to a bookshop uh, where they actually would sell xerox copies of these books you know because in 1988 you could not get many of these books in bombay you know uh, they were very specialized books and uh, there was a bookshop right next to the stock exchange and uh, that guy would uh, lend you the books or sell you the books says xerox copies and so anyway the first copy i bought was xerox copy subsequently i must have bought at least 30 copies of the intelligent investor and read it away to various people <laughs> so anyway that book had a very deep impact on my mind uh, you are familiar with graham's writings yes, you know, yes. uh, not only are they expressing some brilliant ideas on the stock market also they are very beautifully written you know um i think graham was as uh, good a writer as he was a um, analyst and stock picker and philosopher everything so i was very deeply influenced by graham you know and from that day i think i was convinced that the stock market is a place i wanted to be in, you know because it's just excuse because it was logical what he wrote and it also gave me a framework with which i could analyze the market you know and uh, which is why um couple of years later when i started my company i called it security analysis india private you know? that explains it all yeah and i started a newsletter at the same time called the value investor you know again an ode an ode to benjamin graham benjamin graham 3 years later i started a tabloid called the intelligent investor you know so for me the only way of looking at the market was uh, grand's way of looking at them you know now um, today uh, there are there is much more literature available about graham there's a lot more about buffett and there's a lot more about value investing but those days the only two books you really got about uh, you could read was the intelligent investor and security analysis so we would keep reading them again and again we would try to find out whatever else graham had uh, written and uh, that's how we started in uh, 1990 the well investor so i find it uh, i find I, i find it interesting uh, the way it all leads up to graham and uh, and the impact it's had on you because it really then defined what you were 
going to do for a long, long time to come. So uh, do you recollect what it was that uh, that moment when you suddenly realized, oh my God, I found my calling and this is what I need to focus on? When Was there any specific instance in the book or something that else that happened while you were reading the book? Well, it is just that for um, about a year before that, I was involved in the stock market in some way. I was writing about stocks and I was writing it. I never felt um, authentic, you know. I felt I was writing. I didn't feel that I was, um, I knew what I was writing about fully enough, you know. But uh, people are appreciated what I was writing. But somehow I didn't feel um, that conviction in what I was writing myself. Once I read Graham, I think my conviction level was 100%. So in a sense, Graham put all the jigsaw puzzle pieces together. And now I could see a picture of the market. Of course, learning is a continuous experience. And I think it took me 10 more years to piece other things together. But in 1990, I would say I bought into Graham's philosophical view of the market totally. And what's interesting is that now it is 33 years since then. Whenever anybody asks me a question on almost any aspect of the stock market, I have something to go back to Graham and tell them what Graham said. You know. And uh, to me, it has always seemed that almost any question, it's like uh, what uh, Mahatma Gandhi said about uh, Bhagavad Gita. He said, whenever you have any questions in life, you open the Bhagavad Gita and you'll find an answer to that. To me, whenever I have a question on the stock market, Graham has an answer to that. You know, It's uh, uncanny how a person in 1934 uh, could look at all the issues that an investor could face, all the questions that could arise in an investor's mind. And answer them in his books in simple language and logical way. Graham was nothing if not logical. I mean, he was totally, totally logical in whatever he said. There was not one, and everything that Graham said arose out of his own experience, not out of some because there was no investment books before Graham. You know, Graham was probably the first person who wrote investment books. There are probably some technical analysis books, but yeah. no investment books. You know, uh, so I think um, that confidence it gave me. It's like, um, you know, uh, you have a grounding from which you can speak about the market. Graham was a grounding. You know? And even today, I, although there are lots of other things which are contributed, which contribute to my thinking, I would say Graham is still like the, the most important element of my thinking. So 1990s, you were introduced to Graham and you are absorbing it. He's all about value investing. He's the guy who famously said, you know, what people attribute to cigar butt investing. You buy things which are very, very cheap, where you, you know, there's a little chance of losing money, which fits into your credo. You don't want to lose money, right? And within a couple of years, India has this massive, massive Harshad Mehta boom. How did that reconcile with you? Because you were on your path to Graham and value investing. And here there was a market which was going berserk. So uh, actually that worked out very well for me. Because um, what happened in 1990-91, so I said in 1988, the index was 410. Yeah. I made this presentation about the market and he was absolutely bang on target because on 29th March 1988, the index bottomed at 390 and within three months it was 664, you know. So there was a bounce of almost 60% in three months in the market. I, I need to find him and get him on the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's still there in Pune. Very interesting. Um, so, uh, the bull market which started in March 1988 actually lasted till March 1992. And it peaked out at 4,600 from 400. 
So the market went up something like a uh, one thousand uh, one hundred. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in uh, about four years, just about four years, you know, I don't think we have seen a bull market of that type even between two thousand three and two thousand eight. You know, it was the biggest bull market. Of course, the last uh, three four months of the bull market was just too much excess, you know. But uh, I was in the market. I had also journalism background, so even the stories about um, all the operators in the market, I we knew all of that was happening, and we knew that stocks were getting priced absurdly. And we knew some of the manipulations were going on, but it didn't stop us from benefiting from that, you know. So, in a sense, uh, Graham's discipline at least helped me differentiate. So, if you found a stock which is undervalued, the good thing about markets, bull markets, is that they don't remain undervalued for long. You know, price discovery happens very fast. So, you could actually make um, a lot of money within six months or a year of buying the stock. Because the stock could get um, go up three hundred percent or four hundred percent in one year, you know. Of course, it did overpriced after that, and because of Graham, when the market crashed in nineteen ninety two, I did not have any overpriced stocks in my portfolio. In fact, I didn't have any stocks in my portfolio. You had put into practice. You already exited because obviously I knew these were all very overpriced stocks, and I had no incentive to hold them. Um, well, I have. A lot of um, what is it modifications I made to the way Graham used to approach the market. Now, in my own personal style of investing, those days I was a hardcore disciple of uh, Graham. So I would buy if it was cheap and sell if it was expensive. Of course, you could sell when it was like three times as expensive as it should be, but you could still sell and you could get out. So because I used to keep exiting, so the eighty-eight to ninety-two period of the market was quite profitable. You know. Um, which again sort of made sure that there was no thought of doing anything other than being in the stock market in my mind after that. Yeah, you got proof proof of concept. So, uh, so there is ability to be there, no? Yeah, yeah. So when you were in Bahrain, you did all the IPOs, whichever form Citibank put on the counter. Uh, talk talk to us about some of the stocks that you bought in that phase of Graham phase. And uh, some names just to jog our memories. So um, many were actually not very memorable stocks. Some were uh, quite good. So, um, for instance, one of the amongst the first stocks which I bought was uh, MRM. You know. Wow. And um, it's very interesting. Um, MRF. If I had just bought MRF and held on to it till now, I'd have been an extraordinarily rich man. You know, but being a Grahamite, I bought MRF at seven <laughs> and sold it at one fifty. <laughs> and uh, within That's three one years, modification you needed to make. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the modifications I took. Within three years of that, MRF stock went up to three thousand rupees. Oh wow! So I could have held it for some more time, and I could have uh, made twenty times the money, but I sold it for hundred percent return fairly quickly. Um, there were other uh, less memorable uh, stocks. I think there was a company called Saw Pipes, which did uh, very well. There's United Phosphorus, which did um, very well uh, those days. Um, most of the companies those days were actually uh, uh, what I would say in uh, industrial companies. Yeah, yeah, of course. I, I didn't have that many of uh, you know that. Consumer, pharma kind of companies. Pharma was not very 
prevalent those days, except Glaxo and uh, the multinational pharma companies. Yeah. And many of them were actually expensive by grants. And uh, per, uh, perhaps I'm, I'm thinking, uh, did you get involved in any of the Harshad Mehta stocks, ACC, uh, Mazda or whatever it was? I don't know. I don't remember. Mazda. Actually, Mazda is probably the only stock I bought. And I bought it with full awareness that there was, uh, it had to be it's sold. Like a, a satta kind of thing, huh? <laughs> yeah, like a buy and sell kind of thing. Okay. But um, yeah, but not a big quantity, just a little bit. But um, no, I didn't buy many of Ashutra stocks. It's the uh, Karnataka ball bearing. Many of those kind yeah. of things. So, so grand companies, I must say. Um, Ashut Mehta was not buying only uh, bad companies. I mean, he was buying a lot of good companies. Yeah. No, he used to do good research also. Only thing is he used to go overboard with the trading. The replacement, the replacement value and... Uh, I, I, I had an argument with him on the replacement uh, cost principle. Uh, oh, you, got to, you got to talk to him for... I, I used to know all of them quite well. So there was a meeting uh, I think he had held at Coprage. Uh, Harshad was uh, uh, quite an eloquent person. He used to talk um, quite well. And he was very aggressive in his approach. So he was making a presentation about ACC and he was saying that, you know, today the cost of building a cement plant would be so much and this is the cost of this thing. So I told him, you know, I see a fallacy there, you know. So I said, replacement cost cannot be the reason for buying a stock. Because if I look at the Taj Mahal in Delhi, you know, the replacement of cost of Taj Mahal is incredibly high. But uh, you can only charge... Uh, uh, 20 rupees for entrance, you know. And if you charge only 20 rupees for entrance, you can make only so much money a year. So anybody who buys has cannot have any income on that. So replacement cost may be very high. But from a commercial point of view, the worth is uh, based on how much you can earn out of it. So it is not replacement cost, but the ability to earn money out of it. Well, I think um, he did understand. He did accept what I was saying, but it was not what he was focusing on. <laughs> I would not say he was completely wrong because there is a, a reason why many of these companies did well. And that was because uh, I think when Gujarat Ambuja first put up their cement plant, um, they put up a cement plant at a cost of some 70 crores for a million ton cement plant. You know, they so put it up at 700 crores. So if you're running your plant well on your original cost, you're still making good money. So inflation actually to some extent helped all these companies earn um, better. And uh, 1990-91, the market was rife with undervaluations, you know. So, but when he bought many of these stocks, they were actually quite cheap. Oh. But then, uh, there was no justification of the prices they went up. Yeah. How was he as a person? You 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 mentioned he was a kind of aggressive. He was very aggressive. Um, I only aggressive. I, my my only connect with Harshal Mehta was in 1994 sitting outside the Sterling Theatre in Bombay waiting to go into a movie and his Lexus was parked there and oh. those days that Lexus was the vehicle all over India, right? Harshad Mehta's Lexus. So the I'm, I'm surprised because I think in 92 when the whole this whole thing started, it started because of the Lexus, you know. Okay, interesting. You know, you know the story. So basically um, he had borrowed money from State Bank of India uh, without their knowing it. And uh, when they realized that they had lent him money, <laughs> they called him to the central office in Narivan Point. And uh, being Harshad, they drove in with his Lexus there. And once he drove in with his Lexus, everybody could see Harshad. And they started wondering, why is he coming to State Bank of India? 
because he was a stock broker. Anyway, unfortunately, that's how it all started unfolding for him. You know, uh, he was a very, I would say, intelligent man, um, very sharp, very aggressive. And uh, those days, I think there were camps in the stock market, very established players, and he wanted to challenge the established players in his own uh, way. Um, unfortunately, some of the things he did um, were not really legal. And uh, but I think. Um, if he had a better financial controller and if he had listened to the financial controller better, if he had put risk management policies in place, he would have been one of the more successful investors in India. But, uh, That's a very interesting perspective. He had, uh, like I said, he was very aggressive. and He was not, uh, he didn't care for risk much. Mm. Then, uh, yeah. of course, so post-92, we had the FII boom. That was 94. By then, value investor... Uh, was well out doing its stuff. Inve uh, Intelligent Investor had launched by then, by 94? Investor started in 94 or 95. 95, I think. 94. So I think 94 was the FII market peak, right? FII-driven market yeah. peak. So what happened in 92, uh, after the Harshad Mehta scam, the market collapsed. And uh, then when the FII started coming in 93, the market again started going up. So there was a good uh, phase. But uh, around 95 end, I think... Um, what had happened was the first uh, Congress government under uh, Simha Rao was facing its elections in 96 and uh, Mr. Singh was the finance minister. I think inflation was running rampant. Interest rates had gone up to 18, 19%. So they came out with a very, uh, what do you say, repressive monetary policy. So money supply became really, really tight. And that sort of uh, killed the market for the next couple of years. So uh, I'm going to talk about money supply for a moment because, you know, typically when I talk to people about stock market cycles, very few people mention money supply. Uh, it's always got to do with some macro event. So I'll come to that. But uh, the uh, I want to take up the IPO boom first because 95 was another IPO boom. 95, 96, and all kinds all of IPOs. Mostly 95. Uh, so you had, uh, I would say, on a normal week, you would have four IPOs coming out. Wow. You know? So if you had only one or two coming out, it was a... Bad week for the market, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was one of those week. Uh... So Bahrain, 10 years ago to 1995, one IPO boom to another. So you obviously dealt so, with it differently. Absolutely. Um, so Graham had a very strong reservation against IPOs, and uh, what he used to, what he has written about it is that um, these kind of offerings come with extraordinary marketing. And when there's extraordinary marketing, there is always um, something, some information which is not in your interest, which is coming out. So I stayed away from a lot of IPOs uh, those days, unfortunately, because there are some really good IPOs those days, and Infosys was one of them. Infosys came out in 93, it was an IPO. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the IPO, um, the rush of IPOs into the market sucked out a lot of liquidity in the market also at that time. And then interest rates went up a lot. So ICICI, if I remember, uh, issued bonds at 18.5% interest rates. Wow. They, they were the lender and they were borrowing at 18.5%. Wow. So, uh, 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 talk to us a little bit about this money supply concept. I know it's a little technical for our viewers and all, but uh, tell us how important it is, 
or, or it's a story happening in parallel to all the macro developments and why people need to take a note of that? Um, my um, thinking on this is that um, bull markets come to an end, you know, uh, and bear markets also come to an end. But the reason why bull markets come to an end is uh, one of three. Um, either because there is no money supply, because bull markets need money to keep on pouring in, you know, or because valuations are excessive, or because growth has completely stopped. One of the three. Very often, it's more than one reason. So when you have interest rates spiking, generally growth also stalls and money supply towards the market also reduces. So you have uh, two reasons. Um, I think by and large, except for some external event, like a war or something like that, even those things don't affect. I think these are the three reasons why markets come to. So if you find a market which is not overvalued, where money supply is easy, and where uh, performance is okay, not tanking very badly, you don't expect to see a bear market start. You know, I, I would by and large uh, think that. But I was not um, that experienced in 1995. So I did not actually think about the uh, impact of uh, interest rates and liquidity on stocks. And it was devastating. So I actually probably the worst period of my life in terms of investment was 1995. You know? okay. So I bought stocks thinking they're good stocks. And by the time I had sort of graduated, unfortunately, I had learned the wrong lessons from my previous experience. So previously, before 92, I'd buy a stock at 100. It would go up to 300. I would sell it because it was expensive. And then it would go up to 900, you know? And I said, oh, I should not have sold it to three and I should have waited for it to be more. So I learned the wrong lesson from that. And I uh, said, I should hold on, you know, even if it becomes expensive because the company is good, it'll do well in the long run. And that was completely the wrong strategy in 95 because uh, I bought it. Uh, actually, I had one company, which I bought at 17. It went up to 170, you know, and I didn't sell it because I was quite bullish on the business. And it came back all the way to 17. You know, so I gave up my entire gains uh, on that. Um, particularly the lack of liquidity in the market affects smaller companies and uh, secondary companies much more than the leaders. You know, top companies somehow have got better access to finance and they are in a much better competitive position when market conditions are tight. They can give credit, they have access to capital. Smaller companies don't have that. And, um, you know, uh, that's what happened in 95. Many of the mid-cap companies got butchered, totally. And many of the FIs had also bought into many of these companies. And given the lack of liquidity, when they decided to exit them, the stocks just collapsed. Yep. So, the famous Morgan Stanley Growth Fund story. I, I, I mean, there are many companies within that uh, fund where uh, you, the stocks came down by as much as 95%. You know? Yeah. Okay, so uh, this is 95, 96. At this stage, uh, security analysis is do, going great guns. You got two publications out. Yes, uh, um, but our business had actually shifted much more from uh, publications to actually doing outsourced research. So in, you mentioned in 1993, the FIS came into India. And when the FIS came into India, uh, the first thing they wanted from brokers uh, which was not something that the institutional investors wanted earlier. 
uh, was uh, research, you know, and uh, no broking firm had any research department. They, they had cover departments and not the. They had, I would say, relationship departments where they would uh, talk to the fund manager and had execution capabilities. They had balance sheet strengths. So, Unit Trust of India or LIC or something, if they wanted to buy 100,000 shares, would call 20 brokers and give them 5,000 shares each. Well, they were really democratic in the way they do the business. But the FIs were not like that. The FIs would come and uh, they'd place the entire order with one broker. You know, So, most of the FIs would deal with two or three brokers. And uh, each broker would get 30-40% market share with them. Unlike the government institutions which used to make sure no broker got more than 2-3% market share with them. You know, so um, suddenly many of these firms uh, saw the opportunity to uh, actually uh, promote their business by offering research, you know, and uh, we had a very large research department. At one point of time, we employed some 30, 35 people, you know, wow. so, uh, labor was cheap those days. And many of these people are youngsters who wanted to learn and very bright, but no opportunities in the stock market because there was not. There are not too many research departments around anyway. Um, so we started doing a lot of outsourced research for broking firms, you know, uh, including some foreign broking firms. We even started doing for some private mutual funds, you know, private sector mutual funds. Uh, we just do research for them. They would ask us to look at some companies and give us some advice. By then, uh, Kothari Pioneer had launched, I think uh, Zurich had launched or not? I don't remember. Kothari was the first one to launch. Kothari was, yeah. Yeah, and Vivek Reddy and a team had set it up. That, that yeah. was a that, yeah, they had a great track record to East and Ravi were in Chennai, yeah, yeah, Chennai based. Yes, you're right, Chennai based, right? But they had one fund which was run out of Bombay, also. Oh, okay, my fund was run out of Bombay. Um, so we had um, uh, foreign broking firms, um, Indian broking firms private uh, mutual funds. Many of them would pay us fees to do research on companies and give. This, uh, actually uh, became the main business for us at that time. Okay. But that was a very short-lasting business because what happened was while they were very happy to source research from us to promote their business, very soon uh, it became clear to them the research was a core activity which they had to have inside. They could not outsource it. So while in the short term, they could do it. In the longer term, they could not do it. So what started happening was that uh, we started losing a lot of analysts to these newly set up broking, brokerage research departments. So uh, we had more churn rate. Um, we'd lose clients on the one side and we'd lose uh, analysts on the other side. So that became a little kind of unviable uh, business. And like I said, we had a lot of people, we had overheads. Um, so I decided to mothball the business in 96. You know, the entire business. And that's uh, when I actually uh, set up a research department for a large broking firm and uh, became an employee with them for four years. Uh, the company was mothballed. I came back to the company later. Oh, okay. Very interesting. And uh, so that brings us to 1999, 2000, the big TMT boom. Uh, how were you placed for that? How did it pan out for you? What were your learnings from that? So um, I would say uh, in the initial stages, um, I uh, did not understand the IT 
sector, the amount of uh, the extent to which they could grow, you know, so 93, 94, 95. But then uh, we knew all of them, the companies. We would be in touch with them. We'd talk to them. And they're, they're very eloquent, particularly companies like Infosys. Uh, were very, uh, you know, uh, open. They would explain the story to us well and all. It took us two, three years to understand that this story had a lot of legs and it would travel a lot. But I would say that was the period when the idea of growth stock investing came into art, that companies could have exceptional growth. Previously, it was all manufacturing companies, which had a limit to how fast they could grow because you needed to raise capital also to grow. Whereas these companies needed no capital. They had, um, so, even if they were at 25 times earnings, you know, it didn't matter because they could grow earnings at, they were growing earnings at 60, 70%, you know. Um, so I think um, we were slightly, at least I was slightly unprepared for that. I think most people who came from the traditional mindset were slightly un, unprepared for that. Um, so the stocks uh, went up a lot, but finally they went up so much that they could not be ignored. They became so mainstream. So somewhere around 97, 98, 99, everybody started participating in those stocks. But the good thing that I would say um, benefit of Graham was that in 99, uh, when these stocks were trading at uh, 90 times earnings, 100 times earnings, 110 times earnings, at least we had the discipline to go back to our uh, you know, writing notes and check what kind of growth would justify this kind of valuation. And there was no level of growth that could justify this. You know? So I remember we had a very... Uh, you probably know him well, Mr. Chandrakan Sampa. Yeah, you know, of course. Yeah. Very noted value investor. And we used to be meeting once frequently, we chat about these issues and all that. And Sampa that is saying, just because a tree which you plant grows from one foot to 10 foot, 10 feet in three years, doesn't mean it's going to grow to 100 feet in another three years. You know? Yeah, such a nice way to put it. It's yeah. a very good way of uh, putting it. So while these companies could easily grow from you know, uh, $10 million companies into $100 million companies very quickly and to even $50 million companies. Beyond that, the, at some stage, you would expect the growth to stop. You could not project into infinity because then even if you projected growth for another 10 years at the same rate at which they are growing, they'd be larger than India's GDP. Yeah. Plus you saw India's GDP growing at 20%, which was not uh, like the case. It was not likely. So I think what happened in 99 and, and 2000 beginning when the Nasdaq crash took place, um, I was invested in all these companies, but uh, in many of these companies, not all of them. But uh, I was very clear that these are not sustainable valuations. You know? But I think going by my previous experience, I did not sell these stocks because they were expensive. I waited for the stock price to break before I sold them. And as soon as they broke, I sold them. So many of these stocks went down by 90%. After I sold them, 95%, you know, and uh, it didn't matter what the company did, you know, many of these companies grew to three, four times their size in the next two, three years and still the stock fell 90%. So when you said it broke, was it like a technical level or you had a threshold of a, a trailing, what they call a trailing stop loss, 10%, 20% and an exit? Yeah, it's not a, what do you say, quantitative tool that you use saying X percentage or Y percentage, but it's a philosophy. That um, if I've got a stock and it's doing well, it is now at 40 times uh, earnings, you know, and I do all my uh, analysis and my valuations and all that. And I figured that it's not worth 40 times earnings. It's probably at best worth 
22 times earnings. Now it's 100% more than what it should be trading at. Um, having recognized that, um, the second recognition is that now if you're holding the stock, you're holding the stock only because the price is going up. There's no other reason why you're holding this. Momentum. Try, try to look at the price to see the stock still going up or it's going down. You know, there I think theories like Dow theory and all that work very well. You know, so um, you can use quantitative methods, but I think you can get a general sense of, I mean, if somebody is walking, it's not difficult for me to say whether he's walking away from you or walking towards you, you know? Yeah. So that's, um, but you have to have a view that now the reason I'm holding the stock is because it's going up. If it's no longer going up, I have to sell it. So that's your modification to the Graham approach. I think that's a very significant modification to the Graham approach. The first modification is you don't sell it just because it's overpriced, you know? If it's going up, if it's overpriced, it doesn't let matter. Your, let your winners run. Let, let the winners run. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, technical analysis is very different in the sense that it buys stocks merely because they're going. You know? We don't buy stocks because they're going. We buy stocks because the company is good, the valuation is good and all that. But you don't sell them just because they're expensive if they're going. At that stage, I think for selling, I think looking at the price movement, analyzing the price movement in whichever way you analyze the price movement, you know, and there are simple ways in which you can do it and the simpler, the better, you know. So the, what you were saying is very interesting and it's come up on the investor hour before in some of the episodes. Uh, typically, traditionally, what a value investor would do, he would exit his winners. So by definition, what you have left in your portfolio are stocks which are not performing well. So like, let's say you owned, let's, I'll throw a name. Let's say you owned Nestle in the early 2000s or whatever the year it was. And it's an expensive stock, but it keeps performing. But if a hardcore value investor would sell Nestle and he would keep the other stocks which are probably growing slower or still undervalued. So by definition, your portfolio is going to underperform unless another stock breaks out. So I think it was uh, Kenneth and uh, even Gotham Bed's uh, thing. They said, you let your winners run, but you, you, know, you can uh, sort of limit the holding, keep cutting at various stages but you don't get rid of them. What you get rid of are the stocks that don't perform. So naturally you set up your portfolio for a better performance. What you are saying, if I understood you right, and I'll just sort of try and narrate it again. You're saying you buy a good company, buy it at a good valuation. Uh, let's say you determine the fair value is 22 times earnings. You run it up to 22. If the stock is running beyond that, you let it run with the recognition that now it's overpriced. And I need to see how it moves. And at, at some point for a touch and feel or for some other factor, you say, you know what? I already know it's overvalued. It seems to be going down. Might as well take my money. There's a kind of sort of articulated. Exactly. Um, two things. One more variation is when you buy stock itself. You want to buy good quality companies where earnings momentum is there, but also where there is some price momentum, you know? But that's a separate issue. Uh, but coming to what you uh, just now said, it's absolutely correct. And I'll give you a concrete example of that. So in 2000, I said when the IT boom, NASDAQ crash happened, I sold off all my IT stock. The only stock I had left in my portfolio those days was in the Sun you know, which had actually done extremely well um, in the previous uh, 10 years. You know, uh, So I think it had split uh, into one share, 10 shares for one share. 
and the peak price was 323 you know close there and uh, no reason to believe in this or lever would do uh, worse in the next 10 years than they did in the past 10 years everything looked to be in place um, the management was extremely optimistic about growth uh, going forward it was not going to be affected by it and it looked like a very interesting story but when the price came down to 260 i sold off the entire uh, position oh wow um it was expensive at 323 you know but there was no reason for me to sell because those days indusan lever used to trade at somewhere between 45 to 55 times earnings you know and we had we have bought it and we were still holding it and 50 times earnings it was there always at 50 times earnings plus minus so it was not a problem but it came down from 323 to 260 definitely something was changing and why would a stock which typically trades at high valuations come down from 323 to 260 only because somebody is selling it the more people are selling it than buying it yep. and if people decide to sell it till it comes to fair value fair value is a long way down you know as it happened hindustan lever also had poor earnings for the next uh, poor earnings growth for the next 7 8 years they had the new strategy of cutting the tail the stock finally stopped at 109 yeah i was going to say 110 but yeah 109 sounds Somewhere around that i i think it's 109 so from 323 to 109 is a top of almost 67% you know but having sold at 260 you could have bought it back after 6 uh, years at a cheaper price you know so uh, meanwhile you had other opportunities so i think even as good a company as indusan lever yeah to uh, so the problem is if you say i like the company the long term prospects are good i will hold even if the stock is coming down the problem is prospects might get um, not so good yeah, and then the valuation becomes uh, so it's better to once the stock is overvalued you should not hold it if the price is falling no you know that is that uh, so uh, if i can add a fundamental factor to it uh, i used to attend the hindustan unilever those days hindustan lever uh, analyst meetings and they had started this new strategy of getting rid of the tail uh they had thousands of brands and they were cutting off and i remember someone at the analyst meet got up and said how will you manage growth you know it's easier to get rid of all these brands how will you replace the revenue and then generate the growth i don't remember who the ceo was was it dadi said those days or so dadi said was dadi said was the ceo earlier earlier the new ceo who started cutting the tail was mansukh manwani manwani okay manwani so who used to be there uh, consumer products head before you know then it gone to uk and come back so when mr dadi said was there the company grew their portfolio very aggressive mm-hmm. launching almost i would say one product every week you know uh, either a product or a variation of a product or something and that's one of the reasons why they are growing so between 1990 and 2000 they grew at uh, including acquisition something like 27 28% per annum you know but then they were left with so many products some of them were too small for them to um uh, you know put enough advertising money behind it promotion money behind it so i think mr manwani came with the strategy of power brands they said we'll focus on only a few power brands and we'll cut off all the others and that's probably what led to the degrowth and laid the foundation for growth for a longer period of time but whatever the strategy and whatever the reason i mean that is company's yeah. but the fact is from a stock point of view the company had very little earnings growth over the next 6 7 years that's a perfect example yeah Your 50 PE stock, where the earnings don't grow, it becomes a 20 PE stock, and that's 60% down. 
I wonder if you bumped into Chandrakant Sampad then, because this would be one of his favorite stocks, right? Was it <coughs> Nestle, PNG, those kind of stocks? Yeah, most of his stocks are multinational uh, companies. Um, no, I don't recollect particularly discussing in this only uh, with him. But I, I think I've always adopted one policy that when I buy and sell stocks, I don't discuss it much you know, because you have a point of view and somebody else may have a different point of view and both of them may be uh, legitimate in their own way. But you still have to have, um, you know, uh, your training has to be consistent with how you think, you know. So uh, it's useful not to, I, I talk about stocks now and I talked about what happened 20 years back. But if, if I was actually investing in a stock or selling a stock, in fact, one of the things I've told my broker more than 20 years back is when I call and tell you sell or buy, don't tell me anything. Don't tell me things like institution le raya, mortgage suddenly le raya, oh, bech raya, and all that. Whatever I say, please just execute the trade as it is. And of course, I have a very good broker. So he's been consistent with that. Consistent. <laughs> just execute that. And maybe after three months, if you want to ask me, you know, wow. why what you did. That's a lot of, so you're betting it all on your thinking. You're saying, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. So if I trace the changes, in the first phase, it was valuation and Graham. In the second phase, it was trading, you know, like uh, finding uh, position sizing and trading. We're not talking about position sizing, but that's very equally, very important yes. risk management and all that. But uh, also making sure that you exit, have a good exit strategy. And the third thing is you have a right uh, psychological mindset for doing what you're doing. Because the market is a, a stressful situation. Anything to do with money is a stressful situation for people, you know. So the most important thing for you is to be able to do what you think you should be doing at any point of time. And for that, um, I remember somewhere around 2000 or so reading a book called Trading in the Zone, written by Mark Douglas. I think that's one book I would recommend to anybody who's been in the market for a few years and who thinks he is not doing as well as he should be doing, he or she should be doing. Um, as good as they should be doing based on their analysis. If you feel I'm doing good analysis but I'm not getting good results, read trading in the zone. Because, trading in the zone. Yeah, because um, you know, uh, today behavioral economics is a very popular uh, subject. But it's always been, I mean, uh, if you go back 2000 years, if you look at Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, the mind is a very um, Volatile substance. Untamed, yeah. <laughs> it reacts to too many things. When it comes to stock market, you have to have a method by which you overcome what your uh, instinctual response is. You know, your instinctual response is not necessarily your best response. You have to have a way in which you plan that. And one of the biases that we have in economics talk about is consistency bias. You know, so if I talk to you about a company and I say this company is really good and it's fantastic and you know I think this is what they'll do over the next five years or ten years or fifteen years. You know. And tomorrow, there is some problem with the company. It becomes very difficult for me to see that and act upon it because I've now got a consistency bias because I publicly held out this is a very good company. So I keep defending the company, you know. Um, so bias. Yeah. <laughs> even, even, yeah, even markets. If somebody asked me, what is the market like? I remember uh, some 20 years back, a colleague of mine walked into my office and said, kya lagta hai market? I said, um, achha lagta hai, you know. I asked you 15 days back and you said uh, lagta hai. and now you're saying lagta hai. I told him if you come and ask me is it raining I look out of the window and say it's raining if you tell me I came in the morning and asked 
You said it's not really, you know. So if it changes, it changes. You have to be able to change your views. You know, it should be as simple as that, but it's not as simple as that because we tend to get stuck with certain views. Yeah. The famous quote by John Maynard Keynes, when the facts change, I change my opinion. What do you do, sir? Right, exactly. Uh, but it's easier said than done in the sense. But it's very difficult. See, it's your facts and my facts. I can change my opinion if your facts change. But if my facts change, I don't even accept the facts have changed. No, so I defend my own facts. Um, <clears throat> so I think um, the first aspect is stock selection, company selection, valuation. Second is how do you trade your uh, position? What kind of position sizing you do? And third thing is making sure your actions are consistent with your thinking. You know, and that's not the least of the challenges, according to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, position sizing is something we always talk about in the podcast. We'll come to that in a bit, but I just want to sort of get the journey to date. So uh, uh, we have passed the 99, 2000. Uh, you are still at the uh, broking firm. So I left that. Um, I decided that I wanted to focus on my own personal investing. You know, Wonderful. So, Which year was this? Which year did you become independent? 2000. 2000. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. So, uh, so I decided to take up a job or not do anything, which is not in conflict with my own uh, investments. Yeah. Yeah. Investments. So since then I've not had any job, which I did work for a short period of time with Reliance, but that was on the project. This is nothing to do with investments, you know, okay. directly. To Wonderful. Um, I have also worked with the family investment office. For a few years, but again, no conflict. I mean, no we are investing together. So since then, I have never. Uh... So two big episodes have happened in the last twenty years. One was the big two thousand three to two thousand seven big rally and the subsequent crash, and of course yes. the pandemic flash crash and the boom. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. How did that play out for you? How were your thoughts? Uh, like I said, in two thousand when the Market fell, you know. Uh, I was very well prepared in the sense, you know, valuations were uh, absurd, and uh, we also knew that they're not going to sustain. So we're able to take action on that, which sort of uh, put you in a good position uh, when the 2003 uh, bull market started, you know. So um, there's this thing about cash allocation: should you have cash in your portfolio? Should you be fully invested? I think the 2002-2003 period sort of uh, should convince yeah. me that if you had not moved into cash, whatever your portfolio was, you would underperform massively for the next 10 years, you know. So because two things happened, the decline between 2000 2003 in the stocks which are popular, the kind of stocks which would have held in your portfolio in 2000 was huge. So the best performing IT stock since 2000 in that next four or five year period of time was Infosys. And that fell 85%. I think Wipro has not even come back to its peak price even today, or just come back to its peak. And most of the stocks fell anywhere between 90% to 95%, 97%. You know, so your portfolio would have declined to three to five percent of what it was before. And to recover from that, to make 20 times your money to come back to that can easily take you 10 years, you know, or more. Uh, so one was the decline was very devastating. Second thing was the new stocks which did well in 2003 onwards. But not the IT stocks. There are a complete new bunch of companies. So it allowed you to rotate your stocks into new stocks by actually getting out of them at that uh, time. 
you know so i am a big believer that um, you should be comfortable moving from stocks to cash and cash to stocks you know dynamic allocation and how did 2003 to 2007 play out for you i so think that the phase well, of the real estate companies infrastructure companies all that but uh, they made a ton of money for people over so there i had stopped uh, investing on my prop account for the last uh, few years and i don't do uh, i mean i don't actively do anything but those days i was quite active and um, if you're active it didn't matter to you what sector you are in because you just have to understand the sector you know yeah. got real estate companies i got metal companies i got all kinds of companies so long as there is a business and there is a valuation you know you don't have to i was never one of those believers in uh, buying companies only with moat and buying companies only with uh, brand value and buying companies it is of course a very good thing to do if you can identify those companies and buy them at a fair valuation but uh, i could never bring myself to buy companies at high valuations you know which meant you had to buy companies with a shorter term advantage uh, so you had to have companies with holding periods of 3 years and 5 years and so holding periods of 20 years and 30 years always um so 2003 uh, had two characteristics one is uh, there a lot of cheap stocks in 2003 you know and uh, the economy was growing very rapidly you know between 2003 and 2008 it expanded quite nicely uh, money supply was good interest as low as 6% so there was a lot of uh, tailwinds in favor of investors in the 2003 2008 period so the index if i am not mistaken somewhere in uh, march end bottomed out at 2700 or 2800 and it went up to 21000 in 2008 you know so it went up almost uh, seven eight times in uh, five years not as much as uh, yeah. but uh, still pretty big uh, rise yep. so it, it was a very good period and this is one of the reasons why i feel that you should always have patience in the market because sooner or later you will get markets like this so if you are trading water in between if you are not making a lot of money so long as you are not losing money you are making some money you should wait and you should never stretch to buy stocks you are uncomfortable with either in terms of valuation or in terms of quality of company you should wait for the good quality companies to come and you know in as little as one or two years you could make up for gains not made in the previous 3 4 years So I like the way you put it. Don't stretch to buy the stocks. No need. I no, like the way you put it. However, unlikely it looks that you will get stocks at good valuations. The market has always uh, provided those opportunities. You know, at frequent. Like like twenty twenty one. No one thought the stocks would come back. And they exactly. Like, yeah. you know, so decline from what forty two thousand to twenty six thousand. Yeah. Yeah. and the fang stocks is think of the fang stocks people thought oh my god they've broken out and look at them now no, no one wants to even touch them right right what a what a change in environment okay uh, so uh, i'm going to go through some of the little more technical questions so we can get the most sort of juice out of your 30 40 years of experience so we've spoken about your stock selection process a little bit right uh, in the context you've articulated you know you you buy good companies buy at good valuations you made a a remark a passing remark that you also want to buy them when they're breaking when they're starting to move yeah. and then you also explained very clearly on when do you exit and how do you exit uh talk to us if you can add more color to it uh how how unique is what you do 
what what makes this process unique and what does it take to make it work so um it's all arises out of uh, somebody else's analysis and thinking you know so um, if you read phil fisher's common stocks uncommon profits i'm sure you're done so fisher talks about uh, good quality companies which are investing uh, in research or product development for future growth he says the challenge is when do you buy them you know if you buy them too early you might wait too long for them to so you can either wait till the results are imminent you know or you can buy now and say it doesn't matter the results will come in longer period of time i think the latter approach has a problem that you might lose your patience meanwhile your time is also money so you're losing return so i think there are two ways of looking at it. if i like a company and um, i think earnings will grow sharply over a period of time in the future i'd rather wait and one of the cues uh, that you can get is price movement itself you know i'm not uh, what do you say very uh, embarrassed to say that i like to look at price movement of course you know <laughs> investors particularly the you know value uh, investors and particularly fundamental investors think it's almost like beneath their dignity to talk about price that's in that's a very important component that's where we make our uh, returns from so uh it's one tool which is available to investors the price movement so i think uh the returns that you're expecting the re-rating of the stock or the earnings growth they're expecting comes much faster if you wait for the correct moment but there is no i would say science to it there is a lot of uh, judgment involved uh, in this but if you're under if you understand the company well and if you understand the price movements well if you are with the flow of the stock market you will almost see that now the stock is ready to go you know you could uh, see that and that's a better time to buy the stock than just wait and hope that one day somebody will come and look at it and it will start going so uh, that one point which you mention is a very big differentiator vis-a-vis -vis what typical value investors do i think a typical value investor is willing to buy and wait and the big risk like you said then is there's an opportunity cost and you may run out of patience and you may sell it and as always happens murphy's law or whatever that guy was the moment you sell is when it moves right and that doesn't pan out well to go back to what you said i don't think there is a typical value investor you know value investor is too broad uh, term mm -hmm. it can cause so many different types of investor i think the only common characteristic in different type of value investors is that they all consider price and value as two different things that's the only thing Now, how you use that in your investing and trading can be in so many different um, ways, you know. But if you don't distinguish between price and value, then you're not a value investor. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah. So, uh, I think it was Charlie Munger who said, "All good, uh, all good uh, investing is value investing," or something like that. <laughs> I think so. I I think so because finally, um, what are you doing? You're trying to figure out. whether something is worth what you're paying for you know if it is not why would you pay for it? you are paying because you are sort of then you are not investing you are uh, sort of trying to read the market moves you know which you can do and some people have done it successfully but not that many have done it that successfully you know it, it requires uh, a quite an element of luck and probably a lot more um, you know psychological understanding of what is happening in the market okay or let's talk portfolio construction which portfolio sizing is a part of talk to us about how you think about it in terms of 
you know how many stocks you should have uh how how do you do the weightages uh how important is it to go big on the high conviction ideas or not just just your thoughts on that please so um portfolio sizing is one of the things that i struggled with a lot in the first 10 15 years of my investing at least 10 years i struggled with it and interestingly i remember in the mid 90s and late 90s i tried to look up books on uh, position sizing um i couldn't find a single book you know i uh, i don't know if there are books now but those days i could not find any finally i think i found one australian book written by somebody which referred to it uh, you know in some way but um, the book i mentioned mark douglas trading in the zone did not talk about position sizing but gave me a way of thinking about position sizing i think position sizing is very clearly related to risk management you know so i like a company today um, i like the valuation i like the business i want to buy the stock um and i got 100 rupees with me should i buy 1 rupee of that stock or should i buy 100 rupees of that stock i'm anyway choosing you know so i am doing position sizing whether i do it consciously or not um but it's an important question because if it's a good decision 1 rupee is too less to have invested if it's a bad decision 100 is too much to have invested so do i take a kind of um, thumb rule and say okay i will invest Right. not more than 20% not more than 10% so which is what most people do which is what i used to do so i would say no position should exceed 5% of my book no no position like it had no meaning because um, 5% could be too much at risk you know and 5% could be too little depending on how the stock did uh, later what was i really worried about why was i limiting my investment in the stock because if my decision was wrong if my choice was wrong i would lose money you know so i was concerned with how much money i could lose it, it had no direct relationship to how much money i was investing because some stocks are volatile they can drop by 20% in one day some stocks don't drop by 20% in one day they are more stable i have a track record of last 5 years or 10 years to look at the stock so if you look at hdfc bank what are the chances that hdfc bank stock is going to drop by 50% in one year i think very low pretty pretty low you know um not it cannot happen but very low but what are the chances that uh, tata motors can drop by 50% in one year of course it can drop because it's a cyclical business and uh, you know um, what are the chances that a real estate company can uh, drop by 50 it can drop you know so if i want to buy with a five year time horizon i have to decide um, that uh, there are short term events which will affect the stock price i have to hold through those stock market uh, those uh, price events i cannot hold it forever so i have to give it some leeway but with hdfc bank if i say if it drops by 15% i think something fundamentally has changed in the stock or if it drops by 20% something has changed in the stock i may be right but nothing may have changed in a real estate company it can drop by 15 20% for nothing so i have to give it more leeway but in any case it's a very micro level decision which you take for different companies and different stocks um, based on particular situation but you have to have a view yeah i look at a company it is trading at uh, 100 rupees the company is earning uh, 4 rupees a share it's uh, i think the company's earnings will grow from 4 rupees to 8 rupees over the next 4 years you know and i'm pretty convinced based on what i have studied in the company and all that that this is likely to happen 
but the stock has traded between 14 times and 30 times in the last so many years. And I think given the long-term prospects, that it is quite possible for the stock to drop to 18 times earnings, even with the numbers that I'm expecting it to come. So if it's trading at 25 times earnings, it comes to 18 times earnings. Then I'm talking about the stock coming around to 72 rupees, you know, yep. from Am I going to sell it just because it came down to 80 rupees? You know, I cannot because then I would, uh, I, I should not be buying today, you know. Um, but let's say I'm not buying today because it's 25 times earnings. I say I'll buy it at 20 times and it comes to 80 rupees. Now I know it can still go to 72 rupees, you know. But I say it doesn't go down below uh, so much unless there's something fundamentally has changed, something is wrong. So I will hold it if it doesn't go down below 65, you know. Now, how you arrive at that 65 or 70 or something can be dependent on so many factors, but you have to arrive at that one price. So I always say that when you buy a stock, there's a lot of focus on what price you're going to buy it at and what price it will go up to. But there has to be a lot of focus on at what price will I sell it if it goes down? And because there is some price at which I'll sell it. You know, Suppose I'm so bullish about the company and the sector that I say, even if it goes to zero, I'm not going to sell it. You know? So if I put 5% of my money in it, my risk is 5% of my capital, you know. But if I say this company, I understand it well, but there are things I don't understand about this company. So I'll hold it. But if it drops by 20%, I'll sell it, you know. So put 5% of my money in it. What is the risk I'm taking? I'm taking 1% of my capital, you know. So in the first case, I cannot afford to invest 5%. I can afford to invest only 1%. Because that will result in 1%. In the second case, I can afford to invest 5% because I'll still lose the same 1%. So your position sizing largely depends on what is the price at which you're sure you're going to exit the position? You know, and if that you've got very clear in your mind when you buy the stock, then your position sizing becomes automatic. You no, know? that's a, that's a very interesting uh, way to explain it. I'm wondering, uh, 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 just for more clarity, uh, how how uh, how do we explain it with a real life example? So let's say you have hundred. Uh, the overall amount doesn't matter. You're looking at stocks. And you're trying to see how much you can. So it's a game of probability. You're trying to see long-term charts and trying to see how much can you lose on a stock. Or you're looking at valuation bands on how much you can lose. You can look at valuation bands. You can look at uh, events. You can look at past track record of prices. You can look at anything. But using all of that you know about the company and the stock, you have to make up your mind that if this stock price drops to so much, I will sell it. And that how much you sell it determines your... Allocation. That will determine allocation because if I got 100 rupees, mm -hmm. I say if this stock drops from 50 to 30, I'll sell it. That means I'm taking 40% risk on the stock. So I invest as much as 3% of my money in that because 3% drops by 40%, I lose 1 rupee. You know? So in my mind, I equalize all trades. And any losing trade I have will lose 1% of 1%. my capital. Okay, got it. I won't lose more than that. In one case, I might invest 7% of my money. In another, I may invest only 3%. I may invest 7% where I say, I'm buying it 100. If it drops 85, I'll sell it. You know? In which case, I'm taking only 15% risk. You know? So I can invest 7%. 15% will be 1% still. You know? So I equalize the loss potential in each trade, in each investment. Which so means that if I have 10 mistakes in a row, I lose 10% of my capital. So I would bet that if someone followed your approach, he would end up buying more blue chips uh, allocation 
and a smaller allocation to small caps and mid caps and it would be a perfect <laughs> portfolio because it automatically happen it yeah. automatically happen oh, well, that's very smart it's not just valuation other factors liquidity you know so if the stock is not liquid i can't wait for it to drop a lot i mean when it drops i have to sell it you know so and i can't hold a large uh, position so i have to sort of manage my risk in such a way that i still don't lose more than 1% of my capital so you are right automatically lead to more larger allocation in stable stocks and lesser allocation in more volatile stocks larger allocation to um, you know uh, stocks and lesser allocation to illiquid stocks that would automatically happen but you could actually have a larger allocation to even uh, smaller stocks because this is not a one step process suppose i invest 2% of my capital and the price now goes up to 150 you know and i still think it's cheap now i have a stop loss which is 80 you know but now at 150 i don't need to keep a stop loss at 80 i can keep the stop loss at 120 you know in which case in my first position i'm making money so it's a riskless trade for me so i can afford to allocate another uh 2% of my capital to the trade now i have 4% invested or maybe 5% invested because the uh, first position has gone up a uh, little bit and i keep doing that so long as the stock is still viable by my yeah. So the initial allocation, this is subsequent allocations will sort of give it more weightage. I keep allocating so that on my overall position at my stop loss, I am not losing more than one percent of my capital. Wow, this is going to jog all our viewers and listeners' memory. <laughs> They're all going to be pulling out the Excel sheet and trying to figure out. I think it's one of the most useful uh, techniques for uh, two reasons. One is not losing money, much money when you're wrong, and uh, doing really well when you're right. you know because you can allocate a lot more money to uh, positions which work in your favor which is one of the reasons uh, when you're talking earlier uh, yeah. buying stocks you know yeah. you can always buy a stock when it is about to break out and it breaks out you are already in the money which allows you to build a larger position you know yeah. that's a very nice point larger position the, yeah and the 1% loss is uh, uh, that someone can have it at a Higher level, if he has higher appetite, yeah. it depends on your appetite. So, it's one percent. Somebody who has a lower appetite can have half percent. Somebody could have two percent. You know, I don't think anybody can have ten percent. You know, it is too much. And if you have too little, it's you are going to have. You know, you'll only end up with defensive stocks, probably dividend yield stocks. You'll have very small allocations to too many stocks. Then you'll have portfolio forty fifty stocks. Yeah. Hmm. Thanks for that, Raj. They made us all jog our grey cells for this. Okay. But going back to one point which I wanted about, which I um, missed at the time, we were talking about uh, selling stocks when they become expensive, you know, and we talked about the Grahamian approach of value investing, where you sell. But very interestingly, if you have uh, read the Intelligent Investor carefully, there's a prologue to the Intelligent Investor, where Graham has written the last chapter, where he's talked about an investment he and his partners made in a company. um where they allocated as much as 20% of their capital much against their own uh, rules okay paid what they thought was fair value but the stock moved up immediately and it became expensive again violating their own rule they didn't sell the stock although it went up you know and they held on and that one stock according to graham was the best performer huh? <laughs> no gave them more returns than all the things done in a 20 year period of time that one stock Yeah. You know, that is Geico. Yeah, amazing story. Uh, okay, uh, we're going to move on. We have a lot to cover. We are out of time, but we're going to stick on for some more time, if you permit, please. 
uh, how do you detect fraud in a company? Now you are an accountant background, all background you have. Give us some tips on what do you look at? So there are many things um, that you can look at, but some very obvious uh, places where you can look for uh, fraud is um, cash flow versus profits. You know, it's a queue. Um, so I remember uh, way back in 97 or 98, there were two IT companies. One was Infosys. Uh, there was another company, which uh, I will not name. Uh, anybody who wants to go and look and look it up, it's very easy to see. So the company every year had the same turnover as Infosys and same profit as Infosys. So Infosys would report 250 gross turnover. This company would have 240 or 260 gross turnover. Infosys would have 60 gross profit. This company would have 65 or 58 gross profit. More or less the same. But if you looked at it over a four-year period of time, in that four years, Infosys generated 250 crores of free cash. And this company had negative cash of 200 crores in the same period of time. You know, now... What happened to that money? If you looked at the balance sheet, you could see that their fixed assets, some, somewhere the uh, amount has to reflect. So their fixed assets are very large compared to Infosys fixes. So what is happening is that Infosys had 1 lakh rupees of investment in computer equipment per employee. This company had 5 lakh rupees per employee. So I went and asked them a simple question. I said, why? Why do you have 5 lakh rupees per employee when they have 1 lakh rupees per employee? The answer was we are doing very high-end work. But I said, if you're doing very high-end work, your margin has to be proportionally higher. But it's not higher. You know, your profit per employee has to be higher. It's not higher. But your investment per employee is higher. So the obvious inference was that they were overstating profits. And to show it, they were showing it as fixed assets. Company went bust over the next five years. You know, but I think it was a very um, apparent case of uh, fraud, which is visible. Without even meeting the management, you could see there was a problem here. All you had to do was meet the management to confirm your suspicions is right. Because they could explain something. Which this, might... was, this was the riding the tiger company or this was someone else? This is a company called Pentafor. Pentafor. Okay, Pentafor Graphics. Pentafor. Yeah, they Pentafor. Yeah, yeah, the same. So the riding the, tiger, riding the tiger was, of course, Satyam. But that was 2009, I think. That is much later. Much later. More difficult to uh, figure out fraud because the excess assets um, they had parked in bank balances, which are not there. But that is at least from outside to see. You know, I mean, a company can have as much cash as they want, but if the company hoards too much cash, I'm always suspicious. But some good companies also hoard cash. You know, so but look at cash flow. That's the key to finding fraud. So you know, when this Satyam episode happened. I remember now memory is, you know, tricky, but this is what I remember. So immediately people pointed to Infosys and said, what if it's happening here? So Infosys then uh, said that, hey, our banks send the bank statements directly to our directors to verify cash balances. Without so it. this was then, can you imagine? With auditors, with auditors. To, the, to the auditors and I... I yeah. Vaguely recollect board members, but yeah, people Rahul, uh, I've been uh, in the audit profession since 1981, 80, it's 77 actually. It is a practice of auditors to call for bank balance confirmation directly from the bank without involving the company. Yeah, yeah. If there was a lapse. 
that they were getting it from the company rather than from the auditors. Now we all have to get it from directly. Uh, from so the always the case. Even 40 years back, it was the case. It was just stopped. It was temporary. It was just not done for, I don't know for what reason it was not done. But it has always been the case. Even when I was an article clerk at the age of 20, we knew that we had to get the confirmation directly from the bank, not from the... This whole episode could have been avoided if someone had done the fundamental principle of audit because uh, if I had to check for good evidence, the evidence has to come from an independent party, not from... Independent source. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> to a lighter question. Uh, you have... I, I'm sorry, I should have asked you before. You have kids? I have one daughter. One daughter and... Uh, uh, how was how it like uh, to teach her about money and investing? No. <laughs> um, any any tips on how we can teach our kids better who have younger kids, relatively younger my kids? My works in the social sector. Okay. Uh -huh. She's a CA and then she's uh, working. Oh, like father, like daughter, CA? Yeah. Uh, any, any, any nudges? Any nudges or natural? natural? Uh, she just decided to get out of default. I mean, she... She was interested, um, but I think more interested in the non-profit sector. And she's doing wonderful work there, I think. Very nice. Very nice to hear that. So, but but did you did, did you have to go through when she was young to teach her about money, how to save, and you know all the stuff? No, I think our family. I'm the specialist in this area. Everybody, outsourced. Uh, everything is outsourced to you. Everything is outsourced to me. <laughs> <laughs> Not a very. Uh, what is a commercial family over? I, I, I hope my daughters treat me like this. Dad, outsource <laughs> to you. <laughs> I'm sure they do. <laughs> uh, what are your, you spoke of the social sector. So your thoughts on giving away wealth? Mm, it's an interesting question. I think everybody has an inclination to want to help others. Um, and we are always trying to do our best in that uh, area. Um, I think uh, Buffett's way of giving it to Bill Gates sort of shows, uh, like in everything else, I think he's um, realized the fundamental problem of giving away money also, is that it has to be put to good use. Um, you have to give it away. I mean, nobody takes it up with them. No. Whether they like it or not, the day you pass away, you're going to give it away. Who you give it away and how you give it away is a different uh, matter. Uh, but we are all very ROI focused, you know. So even when you give money, you want to see uh, that it is being put to good use and it's actually producing the results that it wants to uh, produce, you know. So I think that is um, really the challenge for, uh, you know, organizations to deal with uh, social work also, that they have to demonstrate that this money which you're taking, and if they do that, I think there is unlimited number of money away. I think. Um, but to answer your question shortly, there is a lot of pleasure in giving and uh, we always look for opportunities to give. But there is always a resistance on our uh, part psychologically because we are not sure if we are just being uh, you know, taken advantage of by somebody just coming and saying this thing. So we tend to build reserves around that. So if you can find somebody who's doing good work you're impressed with, I think it's a great opportunity to give. Thank you for, thank you for that thought. Uh, uh, you you spoke about the book Trading in the Zone. Uh, how much time do you spend reading? I spend a lot of time reading. 
I've always spent a lot of time reading. So um, in 88, when I came into the market, 87, 88, I think um, I was constantly reading books on the market. And I've read books on market history. I've read uh, you know, value investing books. I've read management books. I've read analysis books, technical analysis books, everything. And finally, I've gravitated towards a few books, which I really like. On a lighter like. note, have you finally understood the Elliott wave? <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Elite Wave is still, um, it's not that I don't see merit in something, but there's too much jumbo, mumbo jumbo in that. Okay. You're talking about books, sorry. Sorry for that distraction. Yeah. So, I read books on Elite Wave analysis, uh, you know, um, and I think there are people who are better at me than applying Elite Wave uh, analysis to the markets, but I haven't seen anybody consistently do it well. Uh, Elliot himself is a very, respected person in many circles, you know, and Prector, I think. Robert Prector is very respected in some circles. But I don't think it delivers results consistently. And for me, in anything that I do, whether it is investing or, uh, you know, I play golf now, I, I want consistency more than anything. Else. It's not okay once in a while to be right. Mm-hmm. Probability of being right has to be um, much higher. And that is what I think is the important principle in investing. You know, if you take 10 decisions, surely some of them are going to be wrong. But if five of them are wrong and five of them are right, then you're basically tossing a coin, you know. You're, so you're to have a system that delivers you at least 70, 80, 90% correct results. Okay. Uh, to, uh, talk to us about, uh, one is, okay, one is what you read in terms of, a. do you read anything uh, global context, uh, beyond money, business, finance, that sort of helps you in your thinking? And what you would suggest to our viewers and listeners. I'll just give you a personal example, if I may. Like, I try and read a lot of international publications, like The Economist. Even I read The Wall Street Journal. Just to get perspective. They may not really have a lot on India. But it gives you a perspective because India is really a follower in many senses of global trends which have happened over decades and are happening around the world. So it kind of helps a little bit. Your take on that, please. No, I agree totally. In fact, I think uh, the ability to read um, a lot uh, is a very important uh, quality if you want to be a successful investor because um, you can absorb a lot of information and not only contemporary events, not only news and analysis, but also that, you know, so what is Elon Musk doing with Tesla? What is uh, happening in uh, Bitcoin? You know, what did Mr. Madoff do that he was able to pull off? Uh, history of the financial markets. I think um, Russell Napier does a one-year, every-year seminar on that. I find it very interesting because it deals with what happened in the markets over a long period of time. It deals with behavioral economics, many things. I think um, if you read a lot, uh, automatically what is relevant to you will become embedded somewhere in your system. It will affect your thinking. I think there's also be cross-pollination of ideas you'll get. Um, so there may not be a one-to-one relationship between what you read and what you do. But everything that you read sort of... Uh, fertilizes the mind. So I would uh, think that's probably the single most important quality that any investor should have. Huge amount. You refer to the Gita. Uh, uh, Do you read uh, these historical texts as well? So I read a lot of uh, Gita, Upanishads, Yoga Sutras, and uh, I find them very fascinating. So um, one of the subjects that we talk about is behavioral economics and, uh, you know, the way the mind works when it comes to stock market and all. 
it just amazes me that 2000 years back somebody could have written about all of these things you know patanjali's yoga sutras or some of the upanishads which actually describe the thinking of the mind so well you know the fallacies of the mind not that uh, the new writings on this subject don't have anything new to offer but the fundamental principles are already there in uh, so i i would think that uh, an understanding of ourselves is very critical to um, you know doing better in our thinking so we can know everything about the rest of the world but if we don't understand our own mind we'll not be able to take good decisions so if you had to recommend one of those books uh, patanjali or upanishad uh, which one would you save someone start with as a, from a investing perspective mindset perspective so uh, patanjali's yoga sutras is definitely yoga even for the personal uh, personal development um edwin brand um i think is a harvard professor who's written on patanjali's yoga sutras i think it's one of the more accessible books uh, for people like us who are basically trained in the western way of uh, studying subjects you know yep. so well, there are brilliant books written by uh, uh, swami sachidananda and uh, swami chinmayananda and dhanan saraswati and also bk sainger on sutra mm-hmm. i think edwin brand's book uh, is probably more accessible for people like us you know just start with my one final question to you uh what is the one idea that you would leave for the listeners and the viewers to think about good question so i i would just say that um, don't be afraid to learn more you know keep learning throughout your life whenever you have a question be convinced that there is an answer to that question and seek that answer don't brush it under the carpet don't say i don't know how this works i'll just bash along regardless if you say i can't figure out how to buy or how much of a stock to buy try to think of what's a good answer for that and keep looking you will find an answer soon or later no be curious that's a good answer yeah i i i love that the search the the quest to learn and find answers to questions it's it's you know very fulfilling in the long term and uh, i think should make you a much better at whatever you do so so with that raj thank you very much uh for your time is been wonderful fascinating is made all our gray cells jog a little bit and doing those uh, numbers on how to allocate but uh very fulfilling thank you very much for making thank time thank you Ron. wonderful talk thank you thank you for listening to the investor hour i'm very excited to hear what you have to say about this episode or the podcast in general be sure to write to me at info@equitymaster.com at That's I N F O at EquityMaster dot com. Thank you once again, and see you at the next edition of the Investor Hour. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.